This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, a heart drug might have found a new purpose in women with breast cancer. How long you live, where you live, and your gender. New data are showing the enormous gap in years of life lost between suburbs, sometimes ones which are fairly near to each other. And I'll be looking at the scourge of microplastics in the oceans and the extent to which we're consuming them in seafood. And also on the podcast version, don't forget that we answer your questions each week. You can find the podcast in the usual podcast places and you can email us healthreport at abc.net.au. You've no doubt heard that Auckland has gone into yet another lockdown because of a growing COVID cluster, which started around Valentine's Day. It's yet another cluster where the origin in New Zealand is still uncertain, but there are lessons for us, as well as in the way New Zealand is rolling out COVID vaccines. Michael Baker is Professor of Public Health at Otago University. He's a pandemic advisor to the New Zealand government, an architect of their pioneering elimination strategy, and three days ago warned that another lockdown would happen if people didn't follow the rules. Michael, welcome back to the health report. Yeah, good evening, Norman. What is the story of this particular cluster? Well, as you point out, the exact origins are a mystery, but after that, it's pretty clear that it spread from person to person through extended family networks and a school. And there have been a total of 15 cases. Um, and uh, the, it is a, it is, it's been, um, I guess, straining our contact tracing system which is now highly developed, but it is still a struggle once it gets into some communities. Now, this is largely in South Auckland, which is, a, which is quite a disadvantaged part or can be quite a disadvantaged part of Auckland. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, there is some suspicion of health authorities. And there was one case, a, 20 year old, a 21-year-old man who um, basically um, got tested um, because he had some symptoms and then uh, instead of... Um, staying at home and isolating, he then went to the gym and resumed his normal activities. And that's caused um, quite a bit of alarm. And then it became clear that somebody... So this is the first case was in a high school, and I forget the, the, the Maori pronunciation rights, Papatoi Toi. is that right? That's right, yes. Um, but it turns out that perhaps her mother was the first case. Yeah, so the, the, um, the most um, promising lead was that she worked for a business that also had staff that were involved in uh, supplying products to the airport, and some of them went airside, so had a plausible link with travellers, infected people going through the airport. But there's been no genome, I mean, they're all genome typed, of course, but that sequence hasn't been seen in anyone coming through the airport or in our quarantine facilities. But that's where it has to have come from, isn't it? Yes, I think that's very likely, but um, it just hasn't been established. And it's frustrating because in general, of course, as in Australia, I think the genome typing has been a wonderful tool for explaining these outbreaks. And when you say people aren't following the rules, it's not just this person. It's also people are belatedly admitting that they did make contact with the social group and so on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's interesting with the... Um, as time has gone on, people's memories seem to have improved about some of their contacts. To what extent do you think this is circulating? I mean, how wor- you must have been worried to go to lockdown. You warned of a lockdown if people didn't follow the rules, that this is circulating. Because, I mean, yesterday it was 14, today 15. Is, it, is there a sort of subterranean spread here going on? 
Look, we don't think so because um, there's very high volume testing. I mean, people in Auckland are quite concerned. Um, there's several thousand tests being done a day and they're not picking up unexpected cases. And this has been going on for two weeks now. And we would expect, um, if, the, if this was the tip of the iceberg of a large outbreak, we'd expect to see some other cases. And we're not seeing that at the moment. And this is the so-called British variant, the B117? Yeah, that's right, yes. And I guess that's also raised um, more concerns um, as it is you know, somewhat more transmissible. But you're not necessarily seeing evidence of that yet, the same way as we haven't really seen evidence, although we've had outbreaks from that variant as well. Yes, and I think um, it does reflect the fact that even in um, the UK, it took many weeks before, uh, or months in fact, of observing that variant to, to come to the conclusion that it was more transmissible. So I think um, we wouldn't necessarily see it in a, a case series this, of this size. Yes, and it was more that it muscled out the other coronaviruses, and when there's no coronavirus such as in New Zealand or Australia, you're not necessarily going to observe that um, bully boy behaviour, if you could call it that. That's right. But I think, it, obviously, it has raised concerns that we need to get on top of these outbreaks even more effectively than usual. And I think, hence, um, I mean, this has been unusual because we've had a the flip-flop um, approach with this um, using the alert levels. So we had a brief, intense lockdown in Auckland for only three days at level three. And, uh, it's, you know, it's a four-tier system, and then went down a level, and that appears to have been premature. And so we've gone back up. And we have actually haven't had to do that uh, before now. And the le- I mean, there probably are lessons for Australia here. Partly, there's clearly distrust of government and a bit of COVID fatigue going on. Yes. Well, look, uh, last um, or yesterday um, was the one-year anniversary of the first confirmed case in New Zealand. And I think the combination of time and New Zealand's high level of success, like most of Australia, um, and also vaccines on the horizon... I think people have started to relax uh, quite a bit about, um, uh, you know, control measures. And it's likely that the airport was the source. I mean, and this is not the first time you've had an, a cluster where you're not sure where it's come from, but it's likely to have been from you know, the airport. What's going on there? Yeah, well, we all know it's a pretty complex environment with lots of occupational groups there. And... We've got the three potential sources, you know, um, travellers coming into the country who are going to quarantine facilities, quarantine hotels, um, air crew coming through the terminal, and also a very small number of transiting passengers who I think are generally on their way to Australia. But all of those groups are tested at some point. So we'd expect to find that particular um, lineage of the virus in, in one of those groups, and we haven't seen it unless they were brewing it and the test didn't bring it up. And it is weird, but it does, it does stress how the risk is from our borders. And you've got a slightly different vaccine strategy to ours. Yeah, I mean, the, the priority in New Zealand has been for a, a long time to, to vaccinate um, border workers and then their families and then move on to um, healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, and then start to work on the most vulnerable groups. So the priority has been very much um, supporting the, the border defences. And the difference is that you're immunising families and households of people who work there because they're the next line of defence, if you like. That's right. And in a way, this recent outbreak has reinforced the value of that strategy that you do need to cast the net quite widely, I think, around the border workforce. 
And just to explain, this outbreak was before you started immunisation. That's right. Yes, I mean, we're starting to roll out the Pfizer vaccine, quite small quantities at the moment, but the, the volumes will increase in the next month. So we watch closely. Michael, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thanks, Norman. Michael Baker is Professor of Public Health at Otago University. And for more on our vaccine rollout with detail that you haven't heard before, you can check out tomorrow's Coronacast. Our guest is Professor Marion Kaner. She's the Head of Infectious Diseases at Western Health in Victoria, and she's running a really significant part, or they are, running a really significant part of Victoria's implementation. So, of course, that's Coronacast. Get it from wherever you get your podcasts. But this is RN's Health Report. Microplastics are getting right up there in the anxiety stakes when it comes to the scourges of the modern world. We hear that they're prolific in our oceans and washing up on beaches, even finding their way into our food supply. Perhaps you've seen headlines saying we consume our credit cards worth of microplastics every week or that microplastics have been found in our poo. Now, a new research paper has tried to identify the seafoods most likely to contribute microplastics to the Australian diet. And you've been looking into it, Tegan. Yeah, so this is a, a study that looks into basically the Australian-specific microplastic consumption in seafood. And when I first saw it, I thought, mm, don't, don't we already know about that? But it turns out that even though we hear a lot about microplastics, we actually don't have a lot of really solid evidence about them and about how much we're eating of them. So what do they do? So they looked at existing papers, but they cross-referenced it with Australians' actual consumption patterns because often you'll hear that Australian or that people eat, you know, a credit card's worth of plastic or whatever it is, but that's based on global food consumption. And Australians have quite specific seafood consumption patterns that might differ to people in, say, Italy, where they might eat more seafood. And in Australia, we really only eat fish fillets, like kind of fillets of fishes, and then to a lesser extent we eat crustaceans and mollusks like um, oysters and whatnot. And so the actual amount of microplastics in, say, a fish might be concentrated in their gills or their digestive system. If we're not eating those parts of the fish, we're probably not actually consuming that plastic. So how, how do they know, how do they detect microplastics? Is it under the microscope or do they homogenise the fish and look for plastic? What do they, what do, they do? <laughs> One of the things that's a real difficulty is that there's not really a very consistent way of measuring that, and that was one of the challenges that we've come up against. A microplastic definition is super broad. It can be anything from one micron, which is one millionth of a metre, up to five millimetres, and something that's five millimetres you could pick up with your fingers, you know? So uh, there's not a, a lot of consistency around it. And because of that, A, it's hard to tell sort of what a problem it is from an environmental point of view, but it's really hard to see if it's going to be a problem from a health point of view because of um, those those sorts of things are going to behave differently in bodies, whether it's an animal's body or a human's body. So you spoke to the lead author? That's right. So as um, Amanda Dawson, who's the lead author, she's from the Australian Institute of, mean, uh, of Marine Sciences said, there's actually still a fair bit that we really don't know about microplastics in Australian diets. There's not enough relevant data and reliable data for us to put a nice concrete number on it, which is a bit disappointing because that's what everybody wants to hear is you're consuming a credit card worth of plastic. But it's something that people need reliable data on to make informed choices. So it's by, um, Dr. Amanda Dawson from the Australian Institute of Marine Science. Um, so, but before we get to the more general issue of um, microplastics in the diet, I must take it from this that they, it was inconclusive what they found and that it was unlikely that Australians are consuming that much because of what you said before, we're not eating as many prawns as we might think? Yeah, there's a, there's a 
they don't sort of put a quantity around it, but what they did do was identify the sources which are probably the primary sources and what they they said was Australians mostly eat fish fillets. There's probably not a lot of plastics in the meat, but there's a chance that they might be contaminated in the processing um, part of it. Actually, most of the meat, of the seafood that Australians eat is imported, about 66%. And then in crustaceans, like say you're having a prawn, if you're peeling off that poo shoot on the outside, that's probably where the plastics are. But the main way that you'd be getting it if as an Australian, based on how we eat, is probably in bivalves, so oysters, mussels and those sorts of shellfish. Glad I don't eat oysters. So, you know, we're assuming that they're bad for us. What do we know about that? Yeah, there's always the undercurrent for these stories is always that it's like, you know, you're eating this much microplastic and it's just taken as red that it's bad for you. And the answer is we actually don't know if they are bad for us. Bigger parts of microplastic probably just pass through our bodies and out the other side. And so there have been some studies that have tried to look at this. Uh, there's there's theories, but there's not a lot of really good direct evidence because um, what we can see in vitro, sort of in test tubes and whatnot, is that tiny, tiny microplastics, like the, the really small ones, 2.5 microns or less, can cause inflammation in cells. But what we don't know is whether those microplastics can actually get into those cells in our human body. And um, the, just, But the fact that the evidence isn't there doesn't mean that we shouldn't worry about it. It's that the evidence isn't there and we need to research it to know whether we should worry about it. So one of the people I spoke to was Kevin Thomas. He's from the University of Queensland. He studies the health impacts of exposure to contaminants, all sorts of contaminants in the environment. And he says that the biggest or smallest problem with uh, microplastics is that the ones that are most likely to cause health problems are the tiniest ones and we really don't have enough information about our exposure to them. If you think about air pollution, which is kind of one of the really well-studied particle health effect areas, we look at particles that are less than 2.5 micron. And we haven't really gone into that size range in very many studies with microplastics yet. So it's really hard to say whether we are exposed to those really small particles that we think may be capable of going into cells, crossing cell membranes, for instance, being absorbed through the gut of the lungs. So that's Professor Kevin Thomas, Director of the Queensland Alliance for Environmental Health Sciences at the University of Queensland. So are you going to change your eating habits, Tegan? Probably not. I really like fish. (laughs) Well, you'll be all right with your fish fillets, but... um, Mm, muscles. I'll have to Not think a big about oyster that yeah. <laughs> So we'll keep a close eye on this. I mean, and of course, we, the, this is partly homogenization in the oceans where you get the different particle sizes. So you can't really identify where, or could you identify where small particles come from? Is it particular plastics? I think the, the really thing small is- ones? One of the things that um, they mentioned was that just because Australia's oceans might be relatively free of microplastics, because they just break down further and further and further, and that's the problem. Um, But most of our seafood is imported, so just because our oceans might seem very sparkly and clean doesn't mean that the fish or bivalve that you're eating came from sparkly clean ocean. So look at the label. Thanks, Tegan. Thanks. If you live in a capital city in Australia, how long you live varies by about 30 years, according to your suburb. In regional Australia, the difference between areas is 41 years, and whether you're male or female does make a big difference. Another way of looking at this is the potential years of life lost by dying before the age of 75, and that gap is widening between suburbs as some get better off and and others worsen. It also highlights the causes of the most years of life lost. The figures come from the Public Health Information Research Unit at Torrens University in Adelaide, whose director is Professor John Glover. Welcome back to RN, John. Thanks very much, Norman. Where do these data come from? 
the uh, state registrars of births, deaths and marriages um, <clears throat> obviously collect uh, the death data, the certificates from medicos. Uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics adds a cause of death code and also a, a geographic code so that we can then compare the place of death, sorry, the, 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 the usual address of the person who's died um, across a whole range of statistics we've got on the standard geography from the census to screening to hospital admissions to deaths. And that's the, the way the data then provided. We can collect those data from the um, agencies that are, uh, get them from the registrars and then we process them. So some of that data is pretty accurate, but some of it in terms of cause of death, as we've covered on this program before, can be pretty inaccurately entered by the doctor. Yeah, we're dealing at a generally fairly high level. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't errors in it. And, and there are, um, because we're looking at, say, um, deaths from uh, breast cancer or circulatory system uh, disease or suicides, which have gone through the coroners. But we also do have another area of, of, of problems where um, coding, where, where it's not known often that uh, an address will be left as the hospital address, such in Perth, Central, or in yep. in, uh, in Adelaide or Sydney, which then mucks up the data for, for those uh, particular geographic areas. So give us a sense of how dramatic the differences are between city suburbs, even though they're the same distance from the CBD. Well, um, one of them, in just taking um, Melbourne, for example, um, you can look at the, a map of Melbourne and can see very clearly patterns from, from, from on, on the east and another pattern on the west. And on the eastern side, places like Camberwell and Surrey Hills, we've got people, a median age of death up until 19, 20, 2018, the year 2018, a median age of death of 88 years. While in the western suburbs of Derrimut and Deer Park, similar distance from the CBD on the west, it's 17 years less at 71 years. A huge difference in in uh, median age at death. We, we haven't calculated life expectancy, but we've calculated the number, the age of death of all the people who died over a five year period. And the reason you've done life expectancy is people move. See, they've not been in the same suburb all their lives. It's where they've lived and died, in a sense, towards the end of their lives. Yes, so that's why we often only look at premature mortality deaths before age 75, as you mentioned earlier, because at least that gives a marker. People tend to, if, if they've died before 75, they, they might have lived in the same area, but they, they haven't moved from the most wealthy to the most disadvantaged or vice versa. And in regional Australia? Oh, in regional Australia, the um, the places that one of the ones that come up very high was Yakandandra, median age at death of 86 and a half years. That has a bit of an issue because it's got a higher proportion of um, residential aged care. So people have gone from surrounding areas to live there. But also it does have a relatively high death rate among younger people. At the opposite end of scale, um, Newman in Western Australia, a mining town, has got a very low um, median age of death. But again... That's uh, at 45. Yes, and, and that, that's right. And But, but, but again, it, it's a mixture of... And some very high Aboriginal death rates, uh, but also and people who are working in mining move out of the area and don't stay there, so it's a different age structure. But and then we go to somewhere like the APY lands in South Australia, the median age of death is 53 years, and that's a direct measure of the people who have lived there long term. And when you look at potential years of life loss, that's where you get a real gap, and the gap is widening. Yes, and um, we've looked at data since uh, 87, uh, about over about 30 years up to 2017, 
And what we're seeing is that there's been a huge drop in people dying before age 75. It's, it's, it's halved or 52% down. That's across the whole world, which is a fantastic achievement. But unfortunately... Um, it's not even it spread. Been, no, no. You've heard this before in many of your interviews, I guess, um, that in the we divide Australia into five groups or five quintiles. One group is the areas which are the most advantaged and one most disadvantaged using a Bureau of Statistics index. And the, while the 52% overall reduction, the people in the most well-off areas, it's gone down by 61% since 1997, whereas the people in most disadvantaged areas, their rate of death has come down 44%. So it, it, it's, it's meant the gap's gone from a gap of 44% back 30 years ago to now it's more than double. So what's the cause of this or the causes? Um, yeah, we, we hear a lot about how um, income inequality these days. There's all frequently papers around saying that income inequality is not growing or it's flat or whatever. But we all know that wealth inequality is, is huge. There's a huge, huge gap. And I guess that takes into account all the things like uh, housing, um, employment and other things as well that are mixed up with income, but also about what people's life possibilities and options are. And we do know it all gets back to, you know, the, the, the basics of not for individuals but on a population level, education which can lead to, you know, a, a decent job that not only brings in money but it gives some person that self-worth, the whole marmot work from way back, that, that it's all about the dignity, the self-respect you get which makes a difference to the way you feel about yourself, the life choices you can make, the nutrition and all those. So, so you're suggesting that translates into mental health problems um, I mean, I, I, we were talking a little while, what if it wasn't with you, it was with others, but talking about how the years of life loss could could be due to largely to things like suicide, car crashes, things that happen early in life. Yes, and certainly that, you know, one of the biggest apart from, um, I mean, well, cancer is the overall um, core number of years of life loss of over a million over five years uh, Overall, an external cause of all sorts of actions is pretty close behind it, nearly as 1.1. But within individual cause of death, suicide has got the largest numbers of, of potential years of life lost, and briefly, followed by breast cancer, and then on we go. And briefly, how much of it is due to being Indigenous? Uh, quite a lot, but given that the Indigenous population are 3%, it, it is not just it an Indigenous it disadvantage. That doesn't explain the whole story, and it's not in the areas where necessarily a lot of Indigenous people live. And very briefly, the policy response to this should be what? Well, it, it, it's a difficult one, and I know and you know that it, it's, it's got to be a whole-of-government response. Health is very much part of the, the discussion and the issue and, and, and fixing up with the problems, but it comes through education and housing and, and, and income support payments and, and employment and all of those areas. And I, it's not something we're good at having that discussion anywhere in Australia over many years uh, well, across the board. We'll keep on plugging. Professor John Glover, thanks for joining us. Thank you. John, Glover, much, John. John Glover is Director of the Public Health Information Research Unit at Torrens University in Adelaide. In extraordinary research led by researchers in Melbourne, a drug used to re treat heart failure and high blood pressure called Corvedilol may reduce the spread and growth of breast cancer and the chances of dying of the disease. It's part of a theme in cancer research where there's a global search for drugs that are used for something else but which can be repurposed at low cost and low toxicity. Erica Sloan is Associate Professor of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. Welcome to the Health Report. 
Thank you for having me. Now, this is a beta blocker, which blocks the part of the, what's called the sympathetic nervous system, the fright and flight response. It's used for heart failure and for blood pressure. As we've said, some people take it for anxiety, uh, the heart, fast heartbeat. Why on earth would you imagine, to start with, that it could have an effect on breast cancer? Mm. So this came about because of a series of studies that we've done over a number of years now, looking at how that fight or flight response affects cancer. And so we've done a collection of studies in models of cancer and now recently in patients, looking at how the fight or flight response actually acts on cancer cells and on other cells in the tumour that help within the cancer spread. What do they do? What does, what does that stress do? Because acute stress we're talking about here. Yeah, so, so it is acute stress, but it's acute stress also over a longer period. And certainly anybody who's had a first-hand experience of cancer knows that the diagnosis and the treatment is a, a highly stressful time. Um, what we found is that stress acts on the cancer cells and makes them more invasive, so they're more likely to spread through the body. Um, for many cancers, it's not the original cancer that causes a problem. Surgeons can remove, for example, a breast cancer. But when it spreads somewhere else, then it becomes a problem. So, so you so you looked at mice to start with. What did you find in mice? Yeah, so in mice we found that carvitolol stops the effect of these fight-or-flight neurotransmitters on the cancer cells. It stops them becoming invasive. And what this means is that the cancer doesn't spread as much in the mouse. So it means that nerves, and hor- that, that nerves have an effect, if you like, because this is transmitted by sympathetic nerves that nerves have an effect on tumours rather than things, yeah. things in the blood. Right, that's right. And so this idea that nerves are present in the cancer and have an effect on cancer is really new. Like this is only in the last couple of years that we've begun to understand that cancers do have nerves in them. Sometimes they grow into the nerve in the, the um, tissue that they're growing in and there's kind of growing evidence that perhaps they might actually stimulate their own nerves to grow. So in mice, you found a, a, a definite effect. And then you, you had a, a backward look at women with breast cancer. Mm, yes. So we looked at a cohort of women. This was in collaboration with some collaborators in Norway where they have these amazing data sets that look at both the hospital report, like we just heard about in the last story, but also they um, match that with the pharmaceuticals, so the drugs that these patients are using as well. And that allowed us to identify women with breast cancer who were taking some of these cardiac drugs of different sorts and we could look at the women who were taking carvedilol and then the women who were taking other different types of cardiac drugs. And what we found is that those that were taking carvedilol had much vastly improved outcomes compared to those that were taking other sorts of cardiac drugs for similar types of heart problems. So this is in terms of recurrence and survival? That's right, yeah. So it's how much the cancer has spread, but also what their overall survival was. Carvedilol is not the only beta blocker. There are lots of beta blockers on the market. Why did you choose carvedilol rather than one of the others? And, and I suppose the, what I'm really saying there, is this a general effect of beta blockers or is there something specific about carvedilol? So it seems to be a general effect of beta blockers. Um, we've done, well, not all beta blockers. We've done some studies with propranolol, which is another clinically used beta blocker. Um, and we see, saw similar effects with that. We looked at carvedilol because it's already being used in cancer patients to treat some of the side effects of chemotherapy. So some chemotherapy drugs, not all, but some of them can have adverse effects on the heart and carvedilol is used in that situation. Um, what we're seeing though is it's really some of the older style beta blockers that seem to have this effect. 
And it's likely because they were less selective for the heart. They also target another receptor that's not found at so, so high levels in the heart. And it seems like that's the receptor that cancer cells use to hear these, this stress response. So, in fact, there's a benefit from being a bit messy. So, as, in a sense, because not so targeted. And so, assumingly, assume, you know, one assumes now that you need to do a randomised trial to really prove it up because all you find is associations and retrospective studies. Absolutely. So this was the first step. The fact that there is, there seems to be an association there really provides some evidence that it would be worth doing a clinical trial and that's what we're sort of starting to look at now. The that's clinical right. trial would really be needed to repurpose this drug for cancer. That's fantastic news. Let's hope it works out. Thanks very much. Erica Sloan is Associate Professor of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. Tegan, I just love those stories about drug repurposing. It's just so great when it turns up. And such a strange weird correlation that it, that, that seems to work on something that I would think would be completely different. Yeah, and I'm sure histologists, people who look at tumours down the microscope, have noticed nerves in cancers before and they probably just think it's accidental, doesn't make a difference, but you know, now it turns out it does. And probably if you went back in the history of research, somebody sometime would have noticed this and said, maybe nerves do have an association with cancer, but then it all disappeared into the murk of time until it was revived. Well, if you're that researcher, we want to hear from That's you. <laughs> Email us, healthreport at abc.net.au, which is where people have been sending their questions this week, Norman. Yeah. Let's talk about a few of them. Yeah. Lauren is just making more of a comment, really, about... We mentioned really briefly last week about uh, trauma and cognitive behavioural therapy as a way of helping people um, with trauma come to peace with it. And Lauren is a trauma therapist, and she wanted to just mention that there's other therapeutic modalities or ways of offering therapy to people that don't require unpacking trauma, discussing the traumatic events, and, and so they don't re-traumatise or trigger people. And she talks about a few, um, somatic experiencing, sensory motor psychotherapy and others. And what those do is they're, they're body-focused. They assist in reducing the management strategies that people use to cope with trauma, such as eating disorders, which we mentioned, and substance abuse and, and those sorts of addictions. And Lauren, just wanted to encourage listeners of The Health Report that there is great hope for change where people are experiencing side effects of trauma in their nervous systems and she just encourages people to seek out these other ways of managing it so that they can experience relief from their symptoms. Good. That sounds uh, like very sensible advice. And Norman, I have a tongue twister for you. Andrew's written in about a condition called, gosh, help me out. Eosinophilic esophagitis. It's something that Andrew suffers from and it's becoming increasingly more common. And I would really love for you to talk to us about what it is and how it presents in the body. This is increasing in prevalence. Uh, there's a study in children in Western Australia showing it was going up in them. So children and adults get it. And it may or may not be becoming more common. It may just be that people are recognising it and picking it up and looking for it. So it's esophagitis. It's an inflammation of your, your esophagus. Yes, your gullet, which is so it's the tube that goes from your throat to your stomach. And it's an inflammation. And what happens is you get different symptoms here. You get um, men tend to get a sense of uh, difficulty swallowing, food getting stuck, maybe some heartburn. Women tend to get more heartburn with this. And by the way, 
if you have a problem with swallowing, that's really a medical emergency. You've just got to get checked up. You don't sit with a problem like dysphagia. So eosinophilic esophagitis doesn't kill you, but there are some causes of dysphagia which really are problematic and can be associated with malignancy. So you really got to, you've got a problem swallowing, you go to your GP and your GP will refer you on because you just got to get that sorted out. And food impaction is another one. You, these are These are things that you just do not sit with. But for most people, it will turn out to be something like this. So there's eosinophilic esophagitis occurs by itself, but it can also occur when you've got reflux and you've got an autoimmune disease like Crohn's or food hypersensitivity. So it can be a reaction to other things. Eosinophils are white blood cells that are associated with allergy. And it's, it's thought that most cases of eosinophilic esophagitis are in some shape or form either a reaction of the immune system or specifically a reaction, an, an allergic reaction um, of the body to maybe even similar things that cause eczema, asthma and, and hay fever. And so sometimes they use steroids, what's called topical steroids, uh, to treat it. Um, and people are actually developing monoclonal antibodies to see whether or not they can interfere with this immune process. But Andrew's right, it is it can be hard to treat. And it is a thing in its own right, but there are plenty of people with eosinophilic esophagitis where the cause is actually clearly identified, which could be treated like reflux disease or Crohn's disease. So there are ways, that, you know, if, you, if it's secondary to something else, it can be treated. So interesting. Um, Yvonne is asking about vaccine timing. So obviously we're coming towards winter. People are gearing up to get their flu shot, but we're also hearing that COVID shots are coming down the line. And she wants to know whether how she should time her flu jab and her COVID jab. Yes. So timing of COVID and flu jabs, two weeks apart. It doesn't matter which comes first. So if you've had the COVID jab, wait two weeks before you have your flu jab. If you had a flu jab, wait two weeks to have the COVID jab. That's how you do the timing. And some more flu jab questions for you, Norman. Kate's partner's had two times where they've had their flu jab in the beginning of the season, just like is recommended, but then uh, late in the year has been hospitalised with influenza A, even though they've been vaccinated. And so Kate's asking if there's any point in getting a late season booster flu injection. First things first, um, older people will need to get the special immunisation for them because it's stronger, induces a stronger immune response. So that's the first thing you've got to check that you're getting that right one. And some people do talk about late season boosters for flu. That's not a mad idea um, that you, you can have a second immunisation and some it's not part of the immunisation schedule, but people do talk about that um, to keep the protection going throughout the flu season because there's only a 50 or 60% efficacy of the influenza immunisation, the influenza vaccine. And you could just be missing out on that. It's not strong enough and doesn't last right through the season. So it's not a silly idea to get a booster, but you've got to talk about it with your GP. Is the booster updated? Because we know that the flu virus mutates so quickly and part of the reason why we lose immunity to it is because it changes. Yeah, no, it's the same one throughout the season. It'll just be another dose of it to keep your, get your antibodies up. Right. And then another vaccine question from Pamela, but this one's really interesting. She's asking about what 
involvement animals have in vaccines. And the reason she's asking is this. When she was nine, she's in her 70s, when she was nine, she had an accident where she got a rusty nail to the face and was given the tetanus vaccine. And she came up with swellings on her body and also down inside her throat. It was life-threatening, would have been a terrifying thing. And her parents were told that she should not have any vaccines made from animal material. And and in those days, the tetanus vaccine was made uh, with horses. And uh, since those days, she's had flu vaccine, she's had the shingles vaccine, she's been fine, but she's querying, she's heard that chickens are involved in the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Is she going to be able to have AstraZeneca? Yes, is, is the answer to the question. And the horse uh, serum for tetanus was the anti-tetanus serum. So if you had tetanus or your risk of it, they would give you the serum uh, from, uh, from a horse to, you know, to actually counter it. It's not the tetanus toxoid, which is the standard anti-tetanus vaccine. So in summary then, I think we're fine here in terms of animal products. You, the, and you've had, uh, I noticed, the flu vaccine, the shingles vaccine with no ill effects. The one thing that does concern me in your story is that very quickly you came up on swellings on your body, but also down inside my throat and I also, al- almost died. So that could have been an anaphylactic reaction. And the question is, have you had other anaphylactic reactions during your life? So you need to talk to your GP about this, because if that was an anaphylactic reaction, then there's an issue with the Pfizer vaccine, could be an issue with the AstraZeneca. Um, It's certainly got to be watched closely, but they've got to know that you've got that history to decide whether or not it was a true anaphylactic reaction and how careful they should be with the vaccine. So it's not so much animal material. I'm more worried about the fact that you, Pamela, might have had an anaphylaxis at some point for some reason. Well, Norman, that's all of the questions I've got for you today. But listeners, keep sending them in. You can send them to healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.